This is Behind the Christmas Hits, the podcast with Drew Savage. Trans-Siberian Orchestra came out of nowhere in 1996 with a song called Christmas Eve, Sarajevo 1224. And it just sounded so different than any other Christmas song at the time. The band was formed by Paul O'Neill, a composer, lyricist, producer, and guitar player who literally did everything in the music business. Everything from producing albums from Aerosmith to promoting tours for Madonna. Paul passed away in 2017, but the band is carrying on his legacy and continues to tour at Christmas time every year. Al Petrelli is another founding member and acts as the musical director for Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Al, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Christmas Hits. Well, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me, and I hope everybody by you is healthy and safe. Everybody's doing good up there. Thank you. A-OK. I can't think, Al, of another artist or band that introduced themselves to the world uh, with a Christmas record which is yeah. what Trans-Siberian Orchestra did in 1996 with Christmas Eve and, and other stories. I know Paul O'Neill, the other founder of the band, really wanted to focus on rock operas. Was it always the intent to begin with a Christmas rock opera, or did this kind of happen by accident? That was kind of a sideways accident that nobody really saw coming. So the long and the short of it, March 1995, Paul called me up and he said, listen, I have this thing I'm working on. Would you mind coming into the studio and giving me a hand? And I had known Paul for about 10, 11, 12 years prior to that. And I was just a huge fan of him and his work and everything he was doing. So I said, yeah, dude, I'll be right there. Anyway, I get into the studio and he puts the faders on. And I looked at him like, you know, like when your dog looks at your caca because it really doesn't show what, what you're and I was like, dude, what's with the Christmas song? And he, you know, he laughed and smiled. He goes, well, it's not really a Christmas song. It's a song or a soundtrack depicting events that took place on Christmas Eve during the war in Sarajevo. So now you got my attention. What's up? So what he told me was that back in the day, there was a classical musician who would take his cello and go down to the town square and play uh, um, pieces from the great composer, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, whatever, in protest to the bombing raids. And when he told me that, the harem mom stood up because I was Alice Cooper's musical director for a bunch of years prior to that, and we played in what was uh, Zagreb and Belgrade. And I said, I was in that town square that you're talking about. I said, just give me that press record right now. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to remember you talking I started playing that, and it just created this very dark theme. And then we got into the song, and he goes, that's exactly what I was looking for. Now, I thought that was the end of the conversation because I was like, dude, this is like a, a, just a great piece of art and really powerful, moving piece of music. What are you going to do with these? Like, I don't know, but hopefully it's going to be great and people will hear it. Like, All right, cool. Good luck. And then I continued working with them. But that same year, I'm going to say like early December, 95, something happened. Somebody played it at some radio station and literally overnight it went, it was the number one requested song in America. You know, you got a hit on your hands with talk radios playing your record. You know, that For doesn't sure. happen too often. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden he's like, dude, we got a hit. I'm like, oh my God, it's awesome. You know, fist bump and high five and great. And I thought that was the end of it. No, not in Paul's mind. So then he said, I'm going to write an entire record around that one piece of music and we're going to call it the Trans Siberian Orchestra. Dude, here we are 28 years later, almost 28 years, 27 years later. The entire trajectory, if that song hadn't hit, if it hadn't grabbed hold of people the way it did, would the band even exist then, do you think? Oh, I don't know. I mean, all I can tell you is that because it did exist, then that's why we're here, yeah. you know? what would I, Listen, you know, life's a weird thing, dude. You know, you have the circuitous journey, and all you're doing is making left and right turns, you know? And if we made a left instead of a right back then, everything's different, you know? I can tell you that... Because of that song, 
I have a beautiful family, incredible children, great friends, an incredible organization, uh, and a really great life. So if you take that ingredient out of the don't know. The concept of a Christmas concept album is very, very, very rare. What was the reaction mm-hmm. from music executives, from record labels, when Paul, when you you got together and you said, I know we're going to write this whole album around this one piece of music. How was that received uh, from record labels? Same reaction. Yeah. <laughs> the droopy yeah. dog look, yeah. Yeah, the droopy dog look, dude. But, you know, I, again, Paul told me, he goes, I just want to make great art. And he goes, and if we're lucky, maybe it'll catch on. And when he knew that he had a hit on his hands, and he was really tight with the powers that be at Atlantic Records, um, and it was like, there's no mistake. You have like the number one song in America. Run with it. You know, and everybody trusted Paul because they knew, you know, he had a great work ethic and he was just an incredible artist. So to write an album around that, he basically, he was, you know, he's a, a great writer as well. You know, like um, he loved great literary works, right? And we all love uh, Frank Capra. You know, uh, he loved Oscar Wilde. He loved so many of the great writers. But he just had this thing in his head, this story. And my job became helping him underscore the story. So it really had nothing to do with being a guitar player. You know, it's like putting up like, you know, the, the, the film Hunt for Red October with no music and, you know, and having Hans Zimmer get to it, you know. So Paul told me the story and the story resonated with me. Now, mind you, it's 20, I don't know, 26 years ago. So I was 34 then and my older children were younger. So I related to a different portion of the story than I've, I've grown up to relate to now. But when he told me about it, it's just, you know, like loss and redemption. At the end of the day, everybody misses someone. You can't escape that one, right? You know, especially around the holidays. There's somebody who's passed on, a friend or a colleague that you haven't spoken to, because, I don't know, I kicked in, whatever. Everybody's got an empty chair at their dining room table. And Paul was able to capture that sentiment and bring it to life through several characters in his story. And uh, I think that's why we're still talking about it today, because as I got older, I I started connecting with the older characters, like the, the father in the story, you know what I mean? My oldest son, in the story, uh, there's a teenage runaway girl, you know, and it's Christmas Eve, she's tired, she's scared, she's lonely, she's in some theater, she just wants to go home. She doesn't remember what she ran away for. Her parents are flipping out, where's my baby girl, whatever. Now, my oldest son is a sniper in the Special Forces, Wow. you know, Master Chief. So when I played the song Ornament, one of the songs that the, all the character in the story uh, our singers are bringing to life. You know, I get choked up, dude, because, you know, he may be, you know, that dude, but he's still my baby boy. You, you know what I mean? Everybody in the audience understands the sincerity of Paul's story and that we're not just playing a bunch of songs, singing a bunch of songs. You know, I'm living this every day of my life. As you talk about the music, you know, reaching out and affecting people so personally, uh, the second album yeah. in the in the trilogy of Christmas albums from Trans-Siberian Orchestra, The Christmas Attic, uh, and Christmas Canon was another huge hit from, huge. from that huge. album. That children's choir, the sound of their voices, no matter where you are when you hear that, that just stops you when you when you hear those right. kids singing. You're the musical director. What, how did you react to it? You're in the studio. You're recording this. What was your reaction the first time you heard those kids sing and, 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 and give voice to the music that, that you and Paul have created? It was like herding cats. <laughs> you know, okay. That was my first draft. So, like, yeah. ah, uh, anything for art, you know. But you got a bunch of kids in the studio, and you know, it was a little chaotic for a couple minutes. But you know, at the end of the day, when it came time to hit it, you know, they came through in a major way. The funny thing about that song is when we when we uh, started presenting it live, um, 
a lot of, you know, everybody loves that piece of music. Like you said, it became a really big hit for us. And I promise you, once a year, we'll be playing the song. The girls are downstage center doing their thing. That angelic Pachelbel's theme is carrying on. And some dude in the audience grabs his girlfriend downstage center, gets on one knee in oh, front of the wow. stage. And I'm playing guitar and I'm looking to, and she better say yes, otherwise it's going to be a really long song. And it became so many people's, you know, wedding song now. My brother got married down in Mexico a couple of years ago and he asked me to play it on acoustic guitar. I'm like, really? Okay. Everybody loves it. Do you know it at the time? Like, as you say, you're in the studio and you feel well, like you're yeah, hurting cats. Growing up a student of music, I was familiar with the theme and the motif, sure. But again, that's Paul, though, dude. He had this way of, of getting something familiar and turning it around just enough to, to reach the masses. That was part of his genius. Uh, the Lost Christmas Eve was the third album that completed the trilogy. And as successful as the albums are, it's got to be the touring that has really put you guys over the top. Like, the, the show is massive. Like, as you say, you've worked with Alice Cooper, you've worked with Megadeth, uh, you've worked with big, big rock acts your entire career. This is a rock. This this is a rock show, and it's unlike any other Christmas yeah. show that's out there. Talk about the group's relationship with its audience because it is so big and now such an annual tradition for you guys out on the road at this time every year. Yeah, well, regarding the production, listen, Paul and I grew up in New York City, and when bands would come through town, they play Madison Square Garden, and when they come into the garden, they bring more production because that's where all the record companies were. You know, a lot of the, the business, the corporate side of the music business was kind of held up in New York City. So, you know, you go see Zeppelin, The Who, Pink Floyd, uh, whomever, Kiss. It was a rock show, to say the least. So that's, that was Paul's template. He wanted to, when he said, if I ever have the opportunity to play this building, I'm going to put on the biggest show anybody's ever seen, you know? So in 99, we did our first tour. Uh, I don't know, we had one truck, a 24-foot box truck, and two buses, and the fog machine. It was awesome, you know? Last year, I counted 21 semis and 12 buses and a lot of fog machines, you know? It was paramount to them to make the show bigger and bigger and bigger every year. Why? Because you got people who come back to see us year after year. I affectionately refer to them, excuse me, as our repeat offenders, you know? I got a dude <laughs> celebrated his 700th show last wow. year. yeah. And never one comp ticket. He, you know, he has uh, purchased every ticket. He'll come see us, I don't know, 30 times a year, 25 times a year, whatever it is. And, and I looked at him one day, I was like, why? He goes, because I just love it. I can't get enough of the story. You know, when you think about it, when I was a kid, it was, uh, I don't know, Charlie Brown's Christmas or, um, you know, Rudolph. As soon yeah. as I heard Burl Ives' voice for that narration, I felt warm and fuzzy. Today, I'm 60 years old. As soon as my girls start watching uh, uh, Rudolph, Immediately, I just feel like a little kid again in my feety pajamas waiting for Santa to blast through the fireplace. You know? And I think it resonates with people. They want tradition. They want a safe place to go. You know, For two hours and, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, it's escapism on the highest level. I mean, the production is just, like, ridiculous. But there's a moment in the show where it's just me and my acoustic guitar and a singer, and you can hear a pin dropping, you know, surrounded by 17,000 people. So dynamically, it's just going to keep taking you someplace. And, of course... Paul Paul stuff has a happy ending. You're a rock and roll guy. Are you a Christmas guy too? As a kid, you get caught up in Christmas and, you know, Santa and presents. And, yeah. You know, the religion. You know, so I grew up in Italian Catholic on Long Island, man. A lot of, you know, the whole religious thing, midnight mass, all that stuff, special dinners, the, you know, the gathering of the family was always exciting to me. Yeah. And as you get a little bit older, you know, you, you kind of, I don't know if you grow out of it, but there was a portion where maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. But when I started having children and I saw Christmas through their eyes, that's it. You know, like I said, my oldest son is 37 years old. 
Uh, my daughter is six years old. And from the second she opened her eyes, I, I, you know, I fell in love with her, obviously. But everything is better seeing it from her vantage point. And Christmas with kids, dude. And then, you know, I, what do I do? I go to work. And I play incredible music in front of incredible people in an incredible arena. And I see the holidays through their eyes, if that makes any sense. You know, like there's always some teenager in the front row who's like, oh, I can't believe I'm going to a Christmas concert. This is terrible. I hate my yeah. parents. And then, dude, I hit a downbeat and we're going. And they're like, like that, you know? And I can't tell you how many folks in the audience have commented, hey, you know, it's not the holidays till you guys come through town or, you know, we, we play our, your music from Thanksgiving until New Year's in our home. You know, to be part of that, that even went way past the call of duty. Um, I didn't. I don't think Paul O'Neill saw that one on the horizon. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But that's something that I'm so proud of, to know that something he created, and I was there to help him a little bit, has become part of, like we just said, you know, a new borough lives, if you will. For sure. One of the things that we love to do in this series is to to, to put a lot of this music back in its original context. Because after, for, for a lot of it, for a lot of Christmas music, once it's been out for a little while, it all gets just lumped into the same category as Christmas music. And, and, and some people can disregard it. But as you're talking about the relationship that your music has with your fans, you are woven into the fabric of people's lives. Like, that's 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 really, really special. It is very special. I didn't know who Nat King Cole was when I was a kid. I just knew I loved that song. Yeah. As soon as I heard Chestnuts, we're on. Yeah. You know? Uh, Donny Hathaway, This Christmas, you know? Uh, whatever it's going to be. Uh, well, listen, going back, I don't know what year it would have been, but Bing Crosby and David Bowie, when they did that duet on The Little Drummer Boy. Anybody who knew who Bing Crosby was, I promise you, they had no clue who David Bowie was and vice versa. <laughs> you know, But how poignant was that, if you think about it now, that they're bridging the generations and everything comes together musically in a common theme. A modern approach to it on one side of the fence and traditionally, you know, here's Bing like looking all handsome with a sweater and his pipe and he got Bowie coming in. Starman. But the commonality was the music and the melody and the theme and the warmth that it created. So, I, you know, listen, I hope to God I have a, a chance to talk to you in another 10 years or 15 years and we're still, you know, moving forward, you know. But Paul said he wanted all of this to last long past when we leave. I wasn't ready for that to occur when we lost him a bunch of years ago. But if that was his wish and his plan, well, I'm still breathing. We're going to continually make the show better, bigger, uh, more important, more poignant, more special. And I like to see this, you know, maybe, you know, if I ever have grandkids one day, maybe they'll go, <laughs> Grandpa, it's kind of cool. <laughs> or maybe not. I don't think you have to worry about that, Al. Al Petrelli, the music director of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. We appreciate the time so much. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, respect, my brother. Stay safe and have a happy holiday. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. I'm Drew Savage. Thanks so much for listening. Hit subscribe for more stories and conversations on Behind the Christmas Hits.